Accelerating careers in real estate with Nick Carman. So this evening, I'm sat with Caroline Harper, Chief Planning Director for Be First. Be First is Barking Dagram's urban regeneration company with 400 hectares of development land. They plan to provide 50,000 high-quality new homes and 20,000 new jobs within the next 20 years. Sounds a breeze, Caroline. Um, but, we, <laughs> but before we get on to that, I asked you to think about your career in terms of chapters before coming on. So why don't you get, get us started? Where does, where does chapter one begin? Sure. Well, I think chapter one is probably my 20s, which I seem to spend collecting degrees. I'm very, very much kind of on track to go into academia. Um, so I, I did my undergraduate in London. I then travelled, much to my parents' horror, for a year or so. Decided I didn't want to be in the UK, so I applied to university in the States. And I went to Syracuse for a couple of years to do a master's. And then I um, went to Vancouver to start a PhD, which I then dropped out of before coming back to London. So yeah, very much a kind of left-wing, Marxist, critical thinking approach. I do take some comfort that my interests in terms of research interests are not a million miles away from what I do now. So focus on cities. Um, I mean, I looked at children and uh, teenagers and how they use the space of the city, but you know, you can see parallels there with what I've ended up in. So it's not, not completely random, if you like. <laughs> I am sure it's not. Do you remember what you were looking for or did you did you have a plan when you were going through academia? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not a uh, five-year plan person, but I think, I mean, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but I, I think, you know, when I was doing my undergrad, I loved it. I did it in geography and I absolutely loved it. And um, I worked really hard at it and, you know, got me results. And I was told by a lot of my professors, oh, you should think about doing further education and you know i was like no 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 and when i went traveling i was like well actually i miss it and i will do that and i think you know i don't i had a brilliant time doing my masters and then you know a lot of lessons learned in my first year of my phd but i i think there is a difference between doing something because people tell you that you're good at it and you know that you're good at it and actually that being enough in terms of life satisfaction um which is ultimately one of the reasons why i left doing a phd so it's not that I fell into it because it was a conscious decision, but yeah, I just like, well, I'm good at this and I know I can get funding and all the rest of it. So this seems like a good way of living in a different country. I think that's probably as far as I planned on that one. Well, then let's let's kick off your career in real estate then. And it mm. begins it begins with CBRE, doesn't it, in, in the year 2008 as a graduate planner? Yep, yep. History tells us that couldn't have been an easy year to get started in a career in real estate. No, I mean, I, I was... Lucky. So what happened is I came back from Vancouver and not having a clue what I was doing, um, moved in with friends in London and ended up temping for, you know, I needed money. So I ended up temping for a property recruitment company and just for a few weeks. And I was quite, I, you know, I didn't have enough work to do and I was quite bored. So I started just doing things off my own back. And one of the partners noticed um, and, you know, was like what are you doing with your life and I was like I don't know um I've come back from doing starting a PhD and I I was um looking into did I want to work in real estate but I was also looking into advertising and the charity sector so very like mixed um and this partner like set me up with interviews with like the head of planning at CBRE and the various other of the planning consultancy so I went and had these conversations with people that I would never have 
met off my own back. And from that, I got offered various jobs and then I went with CBRE. So I was, I was really lucky. I was outside the normal graduate um, program and yeah, just went from there. And when you, when you had started, did you look back at your time in academia as uh, something as an advantage or a disadvantage when, you, when the, the other graduates you know, were a few years your junior? I don't think I don't know if I think about it in those terms. I, I I think it is an advantage in that I always think that there is a benefit of of coming to something not through a standard route, um, and I think it gives you you know a slightly different perspective. And particularly now in my role, which is very much management focused, I think I absolutely benefit from having teaching experience and teaching experience of people that I was only a year or two older than, and I think that you know. That's, I, can, I definitely draw on those initial skills um, that happened. And then I, I remember at CBRE, it took me um, a little bit of time to switch from writing um, in a sort of academic style to writing in a business style. And I, I hated it at first, like the very short paragraphs and the kind of sometimes having to be a bit bish bash bosh to get your point across quickly. Um, and that, that took a bit of adjustment and I don't know you know, if you're uh, coming at it through the graduate programme, you, you don't have to worry about that so much, I don't know. So a bit of a, a long rambly response, but I think swings and roundabouts and, um, you know, that is my, that's my life experience. So um, I'm going to draw on it and bring, bring that to the table, like wherever I go, really. Okay. And, and tell us about, the, about those sort of early days at Seabury, because you, you just said yourself, didn't you? You were, a, uh, at that time, you were a self-professed sort of lefty or verging sort of Marxist. And you went to work for one of the, the largest US real estate outfits. Yeah, bit of a switch. Um, it was funny, actually, because when so Stuart Robertson was the head of planning at the time. And I, so I have a tattoo on my wrist. And at the time, I had like a bolt in my ear and stuff like this. And I remember thinking before, I was like, oh, I don't know how this is going to go down and made sure that, you know, I covered these things up as much as possible. And then I met Stuart, um, I can't remember where we met, but for coffee somewhere. and. Um, and I was like, I really, you know, don't want him to, to judge me thinking I'm this like hippie. Um, and he walked in wearing a leather trench coat and this like leather cowboy hat. And as soon as I saw him, I was like, oh, this is going to be fine. Absolutely fine. Um, and, and didn't worry about it at all. And it just meant that we could have this, you know, completely normal conversation about my interests and what he wanted for his his team and whether I made a, a good fit. Um, yeah, and it just it just went from there. And actually, I think, um, of course, the switch from a very lefty world and a lot of performance around that leftyism as like as well to a very, you know, the complete opposite. Again, a lot of performance about what being um, a property standard property person means was a big switch. But at the same time, there are also parallels. You know, I worked super hard doing my various degrees and I worked super hard when I got to CBRE and could see the results that was getting for my clients and for me personally. So there's sort of parallels at the same like high pressure environments and so on and so forth. So that kind of thing I tend to flourish in. So you could see how it worked through and wasn't so dissimilar in some respects. Well, then I think that's exactly how it should be, shouldn't it? But you'd, you mentioned there something that I picked up in some of my research. So I, I spoke to one of your early managers during that time, and they described you to set yourself apart, even as a graduate, because you had this laser-like focus that they hadn't seen before. And you were so determined to achieve whatever you set your sights on. Where did, where did that come from? <laughs> 
well I mean it's a flaw as well as a <laughs> as well as a um benefit definitely something I continually have to manage I think uh if we're going to psychoanalyze me I'm one of five children and I am the only girl and <laughs> I think you know my father always told me I could achieve what I wanted to do and my parents picked my education very carefully so it was very it was very normal to me that you can do anything that you want and very much kind of rewarded if you like of of doing your best um and you know I, I love my brothers to bits but we are quite competitive about certain things and not in terms of jobs and stuff but just that that world has always been part of my upbringing so I think that that has driven me a little bit but then also at a personal level my character is such that if I want to do something and I can see the end game then I will nine times out of ten I will commit to that and get to that point because I find that satisfying and there are obviously some reasons why I see that end game as being worthwhile. So three years on you joined Jones Lang in, in 2011 the competition as a senior planner uh, <laughs> and then spent seven years in that team rising to being one of the directors. Yep. Now part of me wants wants to ask what made you or what drove you to make the decision to move from from one from one real estate advisor to the other had you stopped learning? You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of sort of discussing about these chapters and recognising when we do stop learning or or what might it be the other driver? It's funny that you mentioned the competition because um, when I was interviewed, and it was Jeff Fielty you've spoken to, um, who interviewed me, I asked him, right, why should I come to JLL from CBRE? And his response was, I always remember it, he was like, we're nicer than CBRE. <laughs> And in my head, I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. It's another corporate. But actually, the culture was was very different. But anyway, so what prompted me to go is a little bit of what you've asked, you've um, suggested is I had sort of stopped learning and I felt a bit comfortable as to where I was. And I don't really like feeling that comfortable, definitely not for very long. And I also, obviously, steep learning curve at CBRE, it was something new. But I did most of my work outside London. And I wanted to be doing the projects that were in London. And I also, this straddled CBRE and JLL, and I have a different approach to this now, but which I think comes with age. But I, I was very much like, I want to climb the ladder quick, quick, quick. Um, and I'd had a couple of, um, I'd been promoted relatively quickly. And the next step, I, I had to sort of spend some time, if you like, at CBRE to do that. And I was like, well, I don't want to do that. I'll just go somewhere else that gives me the next step. So which is one of the reasons also I was looking around. I'm not advocating that as a good way of approaching career growth because I think it's a little bit egotistical, but that was also a driver. And then, yeah, just to ha have fresh, fresh input. I really, I went from quite a big team at CBRE to JLL, which was a very small team. Um, and then actually six weeks after I joined, they merged with King Sturge. So that, that like kiboshed that one. Best laid plans. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which it, it also was interesting. Um, but yeah, so those those were the, my sort of f fundamental drivers to get something new. And I, when I met Jeff, you know, he's a really bright guy and I knew I'd benefit from learning from him. Um, so I wanted to work with him. Okay. Again, part of the research of, of, of all this, I spoke to one of your managers uh, at Jones Lang. Now, this bit I, th I, th I thought was particularly interesting. They described your work ethic as being in the top 1%. Very calm under pressure and an excellent public speaker. 
where does that calm resolve come from? And if I could ask you, you know, part B to that is, what made you ever lose your cool? <laughs> um, it's nice that he said that. <sighs> the calm thing. I don't. I don't. I, I would think that that's an outward impression. I and again, this has grown as I've got older. I have like a deep rooted belief that I can do things. I know I have a decent brain, and the older I get, the less I or I guess the better I get at managing kind of imposter syndrome. Um, And it's just a little bit of pointless energy to outwardly sort of be panicking, even in my head, even if I'm in my head, I'm thinking, right, I need to think that through and I need to get a solution to this um, and so on and so forth. And the other, the other side of it is, I mean, my approach is very much, and this is what I try and get across to my team is, you know, Mistakes will be made. That is just part of life. And the key thing is how you respond to those mistakes. And I I just think it's important to own those, you know, own what you're doing, explain why, why you're doing what you're doing and then go from there. And then you sort of going on to the bit about what makes me lose my cool, or I guess what makes me frustrated is when, when I say something, it doesn't land. And that doesn't mean that, you know, what I say is the, the law of the land, but, you know, I'm advising on certain things with experience and with knowledge. And if I have to repeat that continuously, I find it so frustrating because it's just a waste of time and effort. And that is is very frustrating. And then also, you know, bigger stuff, I, you know, I work in the property sector, which although there's great strides being made with diversity, there's, there's not enough. And I have definitely come up against it just by being female. Um, and again, that I find that really frustrating to have to deal with. Um, but at the same time, a way of dealing with that is to be good at my job and getting the results. And I'm, I'm going to do that um, to start sort of breaking it down, really. You've talked quite a bit about your, you know, your sort of managers. And, and obviously, I'm, I'm part of this is the reasons why you've, you've chosen the people you've chosen to work for. What do you think you learned from these guys that's that sort of set you up to be the manager you are today? Hmm, that's a big question. So I've definitely benefited from uh, managers who give me free reign. And that's right from the outset. So when I joined CBRE, I was in my head, I called it the girl team and I was in the girl team. Um, and then I got switched to being the girl in the boy team um, and very different management styles in, in each. Um, but what was in common is that I, like I said, I got free reign. Um, and one of my first clients, if you like, I don't know if you can call them my client as a graduate, but was Surrey County Council. And I had to do in my head, I remember, I'm sure it wasn't quite as free as this, but I remember having to do tons and tons of planning appraisals on various sites around Surrey. And I was just allowed to like hire a car and I'd go off and drive off and see the site um, and then like write a report at home and do it. And, you know, kudos to my manager at the time in the girl team. She just let me get on with it. Um, and that was great. And again, when um, I moved over to the other team, that was the same. And and um, JLL also, again, that was the same, just sort of let me get on with things. Uh, and I always remember this actually from Jeff um, sort of saying as to how I could improve um, I have a tendency to think well, I can do everything myself, which of course is a nonsense. And he was like, remember, delegate down and delegate up. And I still think about that now. You know, I'm fortunate now. Um, my team is in a, a good place and I work with some, I have a great senior team who I 
you know, obviously respect um, and admire. And I think if I can extend them the same courtesy that has been extended to me with previous managers of working with a, a free reign to an extent, then I'm doing a, a, a decent job, but also reminding them that, you know, you delegate up and you delegate down and we're part of the same team to achieve that end goal, I think. I'm going to quote someone now, one of the guys I spoke to who were at Jones Lang. And they said that you pushed hard against corporate boundaries, learned all the skills you could from that that life before embarking on on your brand new chapter in your current role. What was it you you thought that you couldn't learn from that environment? I don't know if it's that I couldn't learn it. I wasn't looking for a new job before I came to be first, but I was also conscious that I was very comfortable and I'd got to a position where you know I I could generate the income and I could generate the jobs and I had my you know little network at JLL and all the rest of it and you could see how you know you could have that sort of comfortable existence for the next so many years but I mean as I'm as I'm saying that my heart is like oh because that's just I just don't I don't want to exist like that and there were certain things that I was doing that I knew that it was sort of time to to think about what my next steps were. So I, you know, I'd like dyed the end of my hair pink just to see what would happen, which is so obtuse, um, <laughs> you know, and actually no one, no one cares and no, no one said anything, but I was like, you know, I'm working in a corporate environment, I'm going to have pink hair, which is, you know, sort of pathetic, but also at the back of my mind, I'm like, what, what are you doing? It's not necessarily a, a sensible way of 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 moving up the career and the and the other thing was um i you know i'm still very committed to my job and all the rest of it but i've also got better at a bit more balance in life um and you know it's not enough just to have a job taking up my time and i'd thought seriously about things like cutting down to four days a week at jll but I was also, I, I didn't feel I could do that. And this is not fair to JLL because I never discussed it with anyone. But I felt if I said that, that I was saying on that, and I'm quite happy to stay here in terms of my career and progression. Whereas I do now work four days a week, which is amazing. And that was part of the condition of me coming to be first. And I had that conversation from the outset rather than it becoming a bigger deal. So yeah, I think there were various factors that, set me up to move somewhere else and then you know i'd have been crazy not to take the job at b first to be honest yeah absolutely crazy well that that sort of ties up then very very nicely doesn't it so we're now in sort of 2018 and you do join b first for those people who aren't familiar with b first do you want to give them a, a quick sort of introduction to to what you're doing yeah sure so um as you said at the intro b first is barking and dagenham's urban regeneration vehicle and we are property developer. We also do consultancy and we do the sort of statutory services um, that you would typically expect the council to do. So within my team, I've got planning policy, I've got building control, development management. Um, and the way I kind of think about it is we do the grunt work for the council who remain the decision makers. I've also got planning consultancy in my team as well, which is what makes us a little bit different as well. And um, we've got, you know, massive aspirations. Um, the, we've got a, a leader who so ambitious in terms of um, making life better for existing residents. And 
also got things like you know reams and reams of industrial land that we should be using more intelligently um and it's i know it sounds a little bit cliched but it's like the stuff of career dreams because why would i not want to be part of a borough that has this level of ambition and also is going to be delivering the sort of mass regeneration projects of the next three five ten twenty years um which you know is some of the appeal so Carolyn, you leave the private sector. You've worked for these these two ginormous organisations, CBRE and the Jones Langsell. You've risen to the ranks as being a director pretty quickly, and then you make the decision to leave all that behind and, and go work in the public sector. Now, I am curious about what your peers thought of that. I think probably mixed views. So I did get asked quite a lot as to why why are you doing that, and why do you think you got asked that? Why is that so unusual? Oh, because there's this ridiculous public-private divide. It just drives me nuts. Um, it should be much more um, collaborative than that tends to be. And I think the stereotypical private planning consultant has a massive chip on their shoulder about, hey, I'm working in the private sector. And the public sector has a similar chip on their shoulder is actually, if we were a bit more collaborative, it would be a much more effective system. Um, but anyway, I won't rant too much about that. And I think... Public sector planners often get a bad rep. You know, I, I've also given public sector planners a bad rep because there are some shocking ones, but there are also some shocking private planning consultants as well. And there are different types of bureaucracy that both areas, I won't call them sides, have to, have to deal with. So I think uh, there was a, a mix of views as to why I was doing that and almost a kind of, well, you're, you know, from some people, are. Uh, you're sort of retiring in some ways, which is sort of depressing in your 30s, but um, <laughs> very, very much wasn't going there. And actually, to me, you know, that is completely opposite of what Be First has been set up to do. And it's a, it's a, it is a public sector organisation, but it's trying to straddle what works best in the public and private sectors. So very much in alignment of bringing those two things together and you know, I, I think maybe it'll be interesting um, to have this conversation in like five or 10 years time and to see where where I am as to, you know, I, it doesn't mean that I am staying in the public sector for the rest of time, but neither does it mean that I am running back to the private sector. You know, it, it really depends on the on the job. Okay. Let me ask you then a slightly different question. And before we went on air, you, you described as someone who likes to get things done. You're the client. So is it easier now? No. Um, in a, in a nutshell, different, I think is, is a short answer to that. So speaking as like a head of department, um, and sort of, you know, recognizing I have the different mini teams in there, I see the planning service that, um, B first offers. And I use the term planning super service, which, you know, it's a bit cheesy, but I'm trying to get away from that dancing around that you have to do on the private sector side. Um, and by that, you know, an example would be you have a client, they want to get a eight story development. Um, you go in to see the council with an 11 story development, knowing full well you'll get knocked down. Um, but if you went in with an eight story, you'd also get knocked down. And I, you know, it just takes time and effort. And it's just a waste of everyone's time. And the beauty of what we offer should be that you cut that out because we've got the direct ties with the council. Um, I always claimed that I understood how councils operated when I was working in the private sector, which was absolutely false. And you get a different, definitely get a different perspective from actually being in it. 
but there are different types of bureaucracy um which i kind of alluded to in the previous answer um you know the private sector is you've got your targets um and so on and so forth to do uh, i'm leaving aside obviously wanting to go do a good job for your clients um there's a different type of bureaucracy on the public sector side um you know members have got their political ambitions that you've got to help deliver and then also obviously the communities that you're um you're building in and and also um setting up various things to, that should be beneficial to them whether it's you know new infrastructure or um apprenticeships um you know trying to draw out education training and, and things like that so different different types of of drivers um in terms of getting things done and it's how you how you manage those to get to that outcome i think having now spent sort of two and a half years in the role what do you wish you could have changed earlier so i spent the first two years of my job very inwardly focused that a, a big part of the job is transformational change of the culture of the team and how it operated um and inc incredibly stressful times trying to get the message across to the team as to how we operated you know i i inherited a team a lot of whom had been tupied over from the council um and you know that came with it all the suspicion um and, and so on and so forth and um i remember when i first started i gave this what i thought was a, a rousing presentation like quoting like matthew saeed black box thinking and all of this and i remember looking around at the team and just being like because I've, I've used that before and it's landed well and i was like this is not landing they're just looking at me with sheer hostility um and as an outsider um, uh, me as the outsider oh yeah. absolutely absolutely um and getting traction i mean the team is utterly transformed and and this year it's been wonderful sort of seeing um, how the people who've stayed are flourishing and then also with a lot of the new recruits you know how that's working through and so on and just you know, to answer your question properly i think the thing that i would have done quicker you know next time i do this is to get my senior team in place quick more quickly um because i was very much a kind of lone voice in my team for a long time and it's um well i'll just be honest it's exhausting it's absolutely exhausting and also you just feel like you're going a bit mad um and you're not going mad um you just gotta you just gotta keep going and actually i now have a you know james coolstock's my deputy and um tim thomas heads up planning policy and those two in particular but i absolutely rely on and you know it's it's just lovely i just i i don't have to worry about you know we obviously you'll catch up and make sure we're on the same page but I'd, I have that support and those additional voices and it helps with the wider team and then beyond that sort of recognize that actually this is where we need to go and we are all working as one if you like one version of the truth to get to that get to that point so yeah getting a senior team in place quicker will be my key lesson learned the next time and you, you touched on something there about the that initial sort of presentation uh, how do you get those guys on board oh the big the big question i ended up using uh, putting in new fit for purpose software as a mechanism for changing ways of working uh, and so just to explain that a bit more so we inherited a computer system back office that you know hadn't it just hadn't been updated for like 20 years and it just really wasn't 
working and it was a massive source of frustration to people. But also there was this kind of acceptance that that's how it was. And I was like, well, that's not how things have to be. Like, it shouldn't be that you have to log onto the same system like 20 times to get it to work. Like, tell me about that and we can fix it. And not surprisingly, in 20 years, you know, software has, has moved on. And, you know, I couldn't actually, stage two will be getting to actually where I want it to be in terms of automation and so on. The first step was putting in the basics, but I used that. I worked with a company called 3110, who are brilliant. And what we did, I talked about, you know, what my aspirations for the team were and et cetera, et cetera. And we um, set some principles. Um, so, I mean, I guess this sounds fairly basic, but, you know, we are working to one version of the truth. We want to offer an excellent customer service. We want to be market leaders and so on and so forth. And, I, you know, I repeated those time and time again. It's like, this is what we are working to. This is what you need to get your heads around to start that sort of transformational change. And, you know, it's, it's not it's not just the, it wasn't just my team that was undergoing that. You know, there's lots of change generally at Be First. You know, we effectively, are, um, we're still young. We're only um, a few years old um, startup. And with that coming, comes, you know, a lot of setting up of policies and all the rest of it. And also sort of getting the relationship right with the council and, a lot of change also at Barking and Dagenham. It's a very different place at the council than where it was a couple of years ago, um, as you as you would imagine. And um, and it's sort of untangling what's happened before. You know, there's certain phrases that some people would say when I joined, like this is how we've always done things, which is just like to me is a red rag to a bull. You know, someone says that, and I'm like, I have to quell that. Well, obviously, we're going to change it um, because, and actually, be like, let me see if we need to change that just sort of trying to get people to think about those things. And then also, um, and I think this is a planning profession issue, is to me, you go into planning and property because you have a certain love for how buildings work and how places work and all the rest of it. And I think, well, it sort of concerns me that quite a lot of planners, um, and I'm not just talking about B first, I'm just talking widely about the sector, they seem to um, uh, forget that the words on a page translate into the places that we'll be living in and working in and, and so on and so forth. And there should be some excitement there. And I, I, I tr I've tried to infuse that into my team by, by sharing that this place works well or this exhibition would be worth looking at um, and so on and so forth. And, you know, to greater and lesser success, but I think, yeah, that's part of my strategy for um, for changing the team. And then and then the other side of it is also recruiting. Um, and you can get, you know, one or two people who are absolutely on the money in terms of where you want to be. And it helps other people see where you need to be. And then, you know, they get on board and you, you build that momentum in that way as well. Okay. And then we get, then I dip back into my, uh, my research I did before the recording. And one advisor described you as being instrumental in making Barking and Dagenham open for business with regards planning. Very hard, but fair. They put you in the category as one of the best heads of planning they have ever dealt with. Was that part of the open for business? Was that a deliberate goal of yours? Yeah. And is, and is that something you learnt as being a, almost as a, as a customer to local authorities in your CBO in Jones Lang days? Um, I think so. I mean, I think there's two drivers here. Um, I think it's very much the approach of be first MD, Pat, that reflects as well. 
but then also um yeah my experience before is so i've you know historically worked on projects where i've got to a point where it's not working and been like right i need to escalate this so contacted head of planning and said you know i i want you to um please attend this meeting that my clients paid x thousand pounds for and i just there's one in particular I'm thinking of. And I remember in that meeting, they sat there. They didn't even look at the client or me. They just sat there looking out the window, just making it so obvious that they had no interest in being there. And I just I just have no time for that. I just think it's, I think it's pathetic, but also so unprofessional. And, you know, we want development to be happening in Barking and Dagenham, good development. And the only way of doing that, like all these things, is to have good relationships with developers and the people who are investing in terms of submitting a planning application and then ultimately building it and the only way you're going to build those relationships is by meeting those people so i think it's really important to do that um and it's also important in terms of helping you know obviously in my team i'm the the top of the tree but it should be that my team at whatever level they're at they can escalate things as needed to reinforce what's happening and that doesn't mean that everything should come to me or James the deputy or whatever but it means that when there is a key message that is needed or it needs a bit more of a strategic overview then they should be able to tap into that um, higher up to bring it in so that again we're uh, we're working together to ultimately achieve a, a better standard of development and so on and so forth and you can't have that if you know I'm locked away being like well I'm 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 unavailable okay so, Caroline, your career has changed. Your employers have changed over this time. I'm curious if your drivers have changed as well. I don't think my core drivers have changed so much, but I think probably how they manifest themselves have. So at a personal level, I know I have a good brain and I want to make the most of that brain and sort of push its potential. So I feel like I have an obligation to myself to do that. So that definitely drives me and I can't imagine that ever changing. And then at a certain level, I always, um, I, I want to make things better, um, which sounds a little bit vacuous, but ultimately what that means is, I, you know, I want my team to be, their working lives to be better. I think, you know, they should, I think, firmly believe that you should be happy in at least 80% of your working life or something is very wrong. Um, and I want to make sure that my team has that and feels part of that environment. And then also, you know, I want to make sure that, and this is part of the appeal of going to be first is you've got that sort of social element um, in terms of, you know, it's very affordable housing driven. It's no one left behind um, wanting to really deliver something for existing communities. And that to me is, is very, very appealing um, as is the kind of, I guess, the spin-off of that of we've got these, you know, new neighborhoods coming forward um, of thousands of homes um, and other associated floor space and I you know I, I want to be everyone talks about King's Cross as being such a great example of placemaking and I want to be part of and helping to shape similar kind of regeneration projects in Barking and Dagenham that have the longevity um, and work work really well um, so those that sort of things are still still drivers um i guess my competitiveness also is in there um but like i say man it manifests itself differently in that i think probably in my 20s definitely when i was 
doing degrees, I was very, you know, I'd work, I would regularly work through the night and think nothing of it and be like, yeah, I've worked 20 hours, 26 hours straight, fine, standard, look at all I've done. I would not just wouldn't do that now. I have to have other things in in my life. So I I do a lot of triathlon and, you know, social friends and all that kind of thing. And I'm much better at that kind of balance. Um, but balance also means, you know, yes, you can be productive in the hours that you work. I definitely focus on that, but it's it's a it's a slightly different way of um coming at it. So I think I still have a tendency to be quite tunneled, but I try and spread that tunneling across different things now as opposed to right i'm always gonna work and and that's that's gonna be my achievement because it's because it's not enough really okay well let me ask you the final question then before we wrap things up we've talked about chapters and in the in sort of the the intro so anyone who's who's joined the the podcast you know i, t- I talk about chapter one where we accelerate chapter two where we consolidate and then a lucky few then are able to recreate, reignite themselves to have a, a second or a third phase of acceleration. You've been at B First now for two and a half years. And we've talked about what you've learned to what you've, what you've grown then. Does that mean now you're consolidating? Have you got more, more to learn? <laughs> yes. I mean, in terms of really what's next, I've spent the last kind of two years or so very inward focused on the team and sorting out that. Um, but my role is actually, as chief plan director, is outward focused and it's to build those relationships with developers, to build our profile. You know, I want to be more than a planner. Um, and, you know, that is participating in research um, and panels and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and being sort of known as, right, that's, Caroline's an expert in this, this, and this. We can go to her and she'll give us a sensible kind of insight and thought leadership on these things. Um, and I think that is important now because I've got the team in a place where, you know, the day-to-day is 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 there and it's running. And um, not to say that we won't continue to improve because, of course, we will, but the wheels are there. We've got good traction now. Um, and so, therefore, my focus now is outward but also building our planning consultancy um, which is really exciting because we can we've got a kind of usp of sitting in a quasi public sector um, and all that that brings with it um, and so on and i want to build that and really sort of start to unpack how we operate well unpack how we operate it's not quite right but um build yeah build that profile in terms of a thought leadership and you, you asked you know have i stopped learning and is it now consolidating um and i confess that actually is something that um sort of concerns me or at least have a passing thought to but i think the way i see it is i learn the most when i leap and i tend to leap into things that i don't fully know or understand and that can happen at various scales whether it's a you know jll there's a big project i worked on that i was i i was in my head, I was like, I'm absolutely working on that project. And I made sure I was working on it, even though in those first few meetings, I was like, oh my God, I'm so out my depth. Um, because I knew that that was gonna set me up well for um, for, for learning. And then I leapt when I joined B First into you know something that again, I knew I could do, but would be a massive learning period. 
and now I think the next bit is probably a less dramatic kind of leaping and it's consolidating to an extent, but it's also there are exciting strands there that I will be learning massive amount, not least because we are in a period of like economic turmoil, particularly if Brexit happens. And it's again, how do we navigate through that? How do we generate um, income that then the council can invest back in services and so on and so forth? And I, I find that really appealing. Well, excellent. I've got to say a really, really big thank you, Caroline, for, for giving up your time for this. I think you've you've led a fascinating career and I, we can only sort of wait and see where, where that sort of takes you as well as, as that sort of develops. So thank you again for that. I know the audience will really, really enjoy it. Thank you so much. I've, yeah, it's been really enjoyable. Really enjoyed it. This podcast was brought to you by McDonald & Company, the leading real estate recruiter. To discuss any matters with Nick Carman, please contact him via the email address in your show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episode as it's released.